to Mark's Gospel, uh, chapter 9. And we'll look there at uh, verse 2 to verse 13, which is known as the transfiguration of Jesus Christ. After six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John with him and led them up a high mountain where they were all alone. There he was transfigured before them. His clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. And there appeared before them Elijah and Moses, who were talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it's good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He did not know what to say. They were so frightened. Then a cloud appeared and enveloped them, and a voice came from the cloud. This is my son, whom I love. Listen to him. Suddenly, when they looked round, they no longer saw anyone with them except Jesus. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus gave them orders not to tell anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. They kept the matter to themselves, discussing what rising from the dead meant. And they asked him, why do the teachers of the law say that Elijah must come first? Jesus replied, to be sure, Elijah does come first and restores all things. Why then is it written that the Son of Man must suffer much and be rejected? But I tell you, Elijah has come, and they have done to him everything they wished, just as it is written about him. Lord, we ask that you would help us as we look at your word, that each of us would be able to hear it and to understand it as the living and true Word of God. And whatever our personal circumstances as we come here, some come with great joy because we know and have experienced Your blessing in these past days. Others, O Lord, come with great sorrow because there is a sense of burden because of things that have happened. Others are confused. Others do not know You and want to know You. Others, O Lord, want to know You better. We pray that as we look at Your Word, that we would be conscious that we are dealing with the living God, and that You would communicate Yourself to us through that Word, that You would be present, for we ask it in Your name. Amen. This is a, an amazing story. It's a story Peter, James, and John would never forget. Mark's Gospel, remember, was written by Mark, mostly we believe at the dictation of Peter. It's really the memories of Peter inspired by the Holy Spirit telling us about Jesus. And here is this extraordinary event which takes place on a mountain. Tradition says Mount Tabor. Others suggest Mount Hermon. We don't know exactly where, but we do know what happened, and uh, we can see there's an enormous mount here in it for us. I think it's our greatest need. Whatever you feel just now, I think your greatest need and my greatest need is that we would see Jesus. I love what it says in verse 8. When they looked around, suddenly when they looked around, they no longer saw anyone with them except Jesus. I think the devil seeks to distract us. Those of us who are Christians, he seeks to distract us from Jesus Christ by getting us to see lots of different things. But the one thing we do not see is Jesus Christ, and that's our, our focus. 
this morning. It may be that you are not a Christian and that you're thinking about all of this, and your greatest need as well is surely simply to see Jesus Christ. John, in, in his gospel and in his letters, talks about beholding or seeing the glory. We beheld His glory. We saw His glory. And it's our prayer that we would see the glory of Jesus Christ. So, look first of all at what actually happened. I think this is a very, very difficult experience for Peter, James, and John to describe. Um, People have tried to explain this away quite a lot. Uh, If you go to verse 10, they kept the matter to themselves discussing what rising from the dead meant. Well, kind of rising from the dead means rising from the dead, but people will discuss things until they're blue in the face, and people have discussed what does this actually mean? What actually happened? What happened is what is recorded here. Some see it as a post-resurrection appearance read back. That's not what it says. Others see it, they, they, they use words like they say, it's a symbolic narrative. What does that mean? It is very clear. Mark is very precise. Verse 2, after six days, this whole thing occurred. It's a precise occasion, a precise time, although we don't actually know the place. Mark wants us to know that something extraordinary has happened, something that goes beyond normal experience. There are signs. First of all, it was on a mountain. Uh, Often the mountain was the place of divine revelation. Moriah and uh, Mount Moriah and the sacrifice of Isaac, Mount Sinai and the giving of the Ten Commandments, Mount Horeb and Elijah. This happened again on a mountain. The cloud came. The cloud stands for the divine presence of God. Numbers 9 verse 15, on the day the tabernacle, the tent of testimony was set up, the cloud covered it. From evening till morning, the cloud above the tabernacle looked like fire. The brightness of Jesus' clothes would have reminded the disciples of what was called the glory in, in the temple terms in the Hebrew language, the term was the Shekinah glory, and the fulfillment of Daniel chapter 7 verse 9, thrones were set in place, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was as white as snow, the hair of his head was white like wool, his throne was flaming with fire, and its wheels were all ablaze. And that's what they saw. They saw Jesus transfigured before them. His clothes became dazzling white. The the Greek word we'd use for transfiguration that's used here is metamorphosis. And it's a, we we catch that kind of idea. Something changed. Luke says, as he was praying, the appearance of his face changed and his clothes became as bright as a flash of lightning. Because I think when you read through the accounts of this, I think the disciples were really discouraged. I think they were They didn't quite know what was happening. Jesus had said they knew that Jesus was in trouble. They knew that they were in trouble. Jesus seems to have been, from their point of view, very morose, talking about his death, talking about what was going to happen to him. He was greatly, greatly burdened, Christ as well. And they go in, and there is Jesus praying. He's transfigured on the mountain before them. And it must have been an astonishing and amazing sight. 
communion with the Father changed his appearance. And they would know from the Old Testament what that meant. Exodus 34 verse 29, when Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the testimony in his hands, he was not aware that his face was radiant because he had spoken with the Lord. There is a, a, a tremendous change that occurs when you meet with God in this particular way. And even more astonishing, they, there appeared before them Elijah and Moses who were talking with Jesus. Now, Peter, when he sees that, you've got to love Peter in some ways, or at least if you're somebody like me, you do, because he's got a big mouth, and he just opens his mouth. I mean, there's this, imagine there's this scene. On top of the mountain, Moses and Elijah, you're, 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 the clothes are all white. You're absolutely stunned by the whole thing. And Peter says, uh, let's build a shelter. Why would you build a shelter? Is it going to rain? You know, what's, what would you build a shelter for? Is it kind of building it like a, a, a temple? Let's put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. And Mark puts it brilliantly. And remember, Peter dictates this to him. He did not know what to say. They were so frightened. In other words, Peter's saying, I'm talking rubbish. He was talking rubbish. He was, he was, he, something extraordinary happened, and he just had to say something. When the correct response would probably have just been silence. The shelter, of course, it's not completely, it would be wrong to rubbish it entirely because a shelter was the word for tabernacle. And the glory in the Old Testament was covered with the tabernacle. And here is Moses, and here is Elijah, and here is Jesus. And he's really, he's, I guess he's saying, let's build a temple. Let's build a tabernacle. Let's commemorate this. Let's remember this. Let's do something here. But it was, he didn't know what to say. They were so frightened. I think there's probably only one thing more frightening than being in the presence of God, and that is thinking that God has forsaken you and has left you. It was a, a, an extraordinary thing. What did it mean? Well, if you turn back to Deuteronomy chapter 34, let me didn't put all the verses up there. I'm just going to read some of them to you. Deuteronomy chapter 34. Read this. Moses climbed Mount Nebo from the plains of Moab to the top of Pisgah across from Jericho. There the Lord showed him the whole land, from Gilead to Dan, all of Naphtali, the territory of Ephraim and Manasseh, all the land of Judah as far as the Western Sea, the Negev and the whole region from the valley of Jericho, the city of Palms as far as Zor. Then the Lord said to him, this is the land I promised on oath to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob when I said I will give it to your descendants. I've let you see it with your own eyes, but you will not cross over into it. And Moses, the servant of the Lord, died there in Moab, as the Lord had said. He buried him in Moab in the valley opposite Beth Peor, but to this day no one knows where his grave is. Moses was 120 years old when he died, yet his eyes were not weak, nor his strength gone. Moses was taken up a mountain to die. And then 2 Kings chapter 2, verse 11. I'll not read the whole of that chapter 2. It's the story of Elijah being taken up to heaven. As they were walking along and talking together, suddenly a chariot of fire and horses of fire appeared and separated the two of them, and Elijah went up to heaven in a whirlwind. In all these incidences and this incidence in the transfiguration, the mountain, 
the brightness and the cloud all have meaning. The cloud suggests the presence of God and the coming of the Messiah. Elijah and Moses, what do they represent? They represent the law in Moses and the prophets in Elijah. Both of them in their lifetimes saw at least one what we call theophany, an appearance of God. Both made an unusual departure from this life, as we've just read. Why was that important? Because, as Luke tells us in his account of this incident, they spoke about his departure, which he was about to bring to fulfillment at Jerusalem. So, Jesus spoke with Moses and with Elijah about his departure. Moses departed up on the mountain. Elijah departed up in a whirlwind. And Jesus was to depart, aged 33, at Jerusalem. All three of them as well, what's really important is that they all represent God's bringing in of His kingdom. Moses led the people to the promised land. Elijah was the sign of the kingdom. Malachi 3.1, see, I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. Then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to His temple. The messenger of the covenant whom you will desire will come, says the Lord Almighty. That's how in the disciples, in chapter 9, verse 11, why do the teachers of the law say that Elijah must come first? The whole idea before the Messiah came was that Elijah was going to return. And Jesus says, he does, he does. Elijah has come, and they have done to him everything they wished. And Jesus was speaking of John the Baptist. Now, this is kind of hard to grasp, but in some way, Moses and Elijah ministered to Jesus. They were talking with Jesus. They helped Jesus. It was, uh, as I say, an absolutely extraordinary event. The greatest of the lawgivers, Moses, the greatest of the prophets, Elijah, were there to tell him, go on, this is the fulfillment of the law. This is the fulfillment of the prophecies. And uh, the leaders of the early church, Peter, James, and John, were there to witness that. What does it mean for us then? Second Peter chapter 1, let's go into Peter's comments tied in with the Second Peter chapter 1 and at verse uh, 16. You'll find it on page 1222. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 16, he says this, We did not follow cleverly invented stories when we told you about the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of His majesty. For He received honor and glory from God the Father when the voice came to Him from the majestic glory, saying, This is my Son whom I love, with Him I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this voice that came from heaven when we were with Him on the sacred mountain. And we have the word of the prophets made more certain, and you'll do well to pay attention to it as to a light shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Above all, you must understand that no prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation, for prophecy never had its origin in the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. It is the way that all these things link together in the Bible, Moses 
and Elijah and Jesus being transfigured and Peter saying, we saw it, we heard it, we heard the voice from heaven. And then him using that to say all the words of the Scriptures, all the words of the Old Testament and all the words of the New Testament, they are confirmed by what was seen and what actually happened. What did this mean then for Peter? I've mentioned already that he was really frightened and the others were frightened as well. But for Peter, what it meant was this was a confirmation of the Word. That was the important thing for him. It was a confirmation of what was taught in the Bible. For us, verse 7, this is my son whom I love, back in Mark 9, this is my son whom I love, listen to him. We, what it means for us is this, we are called to listen to Jesus, not to any merely human voice. Here is the problem. In the world in which we live, in our pluralistic culture, in a culture where there are a thousand voices coming at us all different directions saying, feel this, believe this, why do you think this? There is one voice that we need to listen to more than anyone else, and that is the voice of Jesus Christ. Peter, James, and John understood that the Messiah would come to Jerusalem and rule. Jesus was telling them that the Messiah would come to Jerusalem and die, and Peter didn't accept that. And God is saying to Peter, listen to Jesus. It seems to be the opposite. We, we, we find ourselves in positions at times where what we experience and what we think and what we feel seems to be the opposite of what Jesus says to us. And God says, well, listen to what my son says. Listen to what Jesus says. Don't listen to all the other voices. Now, these disciples, although they did not know everything, had something to hold on to. And that's what we have as well. Whatever your personal circumstances here today, whatever you are feeling, as you hear the Word of God, as you read the Word of God, as you take the Word of God, it gives you something that is sure and certain. We have the Word of the prophets made more certain, more sure, because of what Jesus did. Don't look at your experience to be something that gives the Word of God credibility. Hold on to the Word of God so that it be the Word of God that you hold on to, not to your experience. Because you and I will go through experiences which say to us something different from the Word of God, and we need to know that what Jesus says to us is far more reliable. So, what it means for us is we listen to Jesus. What it means for us is we need to look for Jesus. Verse 8, they no longer saw anyone with them except Jesus. Seeing Jesus is seeing the glory of God. The Son, says Hebrews chapter 1 verse 2, the Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of His being, sustaining all things by His powerful Word. After He had provided purification for sins, He sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. We are in that position where we need to see Jesus. Now, in verse 9, they're told not to tell anyone what they'd seen until He'd risen from the dead. Several times in the gospel, they are instructed not to tell people 
chapter 1, verse 34, verse 44, chapter 3, verse 12, chapter 5, verse 43, and so on. Until Jesus had risen from the dead, then they would understand they were to be the witnesses of His glory, they were to tell of His experience, and they were then to proclaim it. But they discuss, they ask, which is what we need to do as well. We, we, we ask, what do these things mean? They had a lot of questions about Elijah because of what they'd been taught, and they had to work all that through. And that's what we have to do as well. We listen to Jesus, and then we question. We say, how does this fit in with what we have already been taught? Rabbinic tradition said that Elijah would come three days before the Messiah. Rabbinic tradition said that he would stand on the mountains of Israel, lamenting the desolation of the land in a voice that would be heard throughout the world, shouting peace and good. And on the third day, Yeshua would come and uh, bring salvation to the world. He would restore all things. He would sort out the worship. So the disciples are saying, well, if this is happening, what happened to Elijah? The disciples were asking, what do you mean by this rising from the dead? They knew there was to be a general resurrection from the dead, but they didn't understand about Jesus. And there is no way rightly to understand who Jesus is until you've seen Him suffer, die, and rise again. Now, I think they were dealing with that, what they experienced and what they saw and what they heard in the context of what they knew, and then later on they would come back and they would look at it all again, and you get Peter's reflections on it in his letter. For us, we need to see Jesus, we need to understand Jesus, we need to know Jesus. I think part of our problem here is that we don't understand because we want to cling to our way and we refuse to see God's way. As William Barclay puts it, they wish things as they desired them and not as God had ordered them. The error of their thoughts had blinded them to the revelation of God's truth. And that's the crux of the matter, that we are blinded. We need to listen to Jesus. We need the Lord to reveal His glory to us. We may not understand everything. In fact, we will not understand everything. But we want to be like the disciples. As Calvin puts it, to taste in part what could not be fully comprehended. I think some of us suffer from a peculiar form of arrogance, though we might call it humility. And that is, we expect to be able to understand and to know and to grasp and to comprehend almost in full before we believe, before we obey, before we advance. But that's not what we are, that's not the position that we are to be in. We are to be looking and trusting and believing in what Jesus has done and what He has said. Psalm 63, verse 2, I have seen you in the sanctuary and beheld your power and glory. We need to pray. We need to pray that God would show us His glory. We need to pray that we would experience the presence of God and the blessing of God, because otherwise it's just words in so many ways. But we also need 
to uh, ourselves. Stop. Listen to Jesus. Look for Jesus. Desire Him and want to know Him. Wherever you or I are, are at just now, that has to be our, our burden. That has to be what we are looking for. And we are longing for the Lord to come to us and to reveal His glory to us. The early Christians had this longing. They longed for Jesus to return. They prayed, Maranatha, come, Lord Jesus. And that's right, to pray for the second coming of Christ. But it is also right to pray that we would experience the revelation of the glory of Jesus Christ in our own lives. And I think especially we need to pray that when we meet together in worship on the Lord's Day, when we, we gather here on a Sunday morning, when we gather on a Sunday evening, it's not just something that we do because it's convenient for us at a particular time, because we like going through a religious exercise. It's because we want to see God's glory. Now, you can see God's glory, and it can be revealed to you in many different ways, but God has given us a means of grace, and that one of those means of grace is by gathering together to worship Him. It's not enough if our worship is just people meeting up. It's not enough if our worship is just singing. It's not enough if our worship is just reading the Bible. Our worship has it to be a collective seeking after God and knowing and experiencing the glory of God so that when a non-Christian comes in, they can say, truly, God is amongst you. And when we as Christians are here together, we might be frightened at the appearance of God, but we are thrilled. Our, our hearts uh, and our souls and our minds are thrilled by the beauty of the person who is Jesus Christ. We pray and we plead that the Lord would be present with us and would be uh, continually present with us, that we would be transfigured, that we would be transformed, that we would be changed.